morning, Zion Church of God. It is such a joy to be here. Um, thank you, Pastor Justin and the entire church. It really is a joy to be here for many reasons. One, anytime we get a break from your own church, it's just a, a good thing. And uh, this morning, especially, we have some family here, so it's just a special joy. We're celebrating some really wonderful things in the life of our family. And so you guys are family, an extension of our family as well. So I just want to thank Pastor Sabu and, brother, you're doing some really good work here. You, you have a great pastor. You can give him a hand and his wife as well. Um, pastoral ministry, as many of you I'm sure know, is not easy. But the Lord will give you grace and all that you need to sustain in this work. Uh, so thank you, brother, for, for everything that you do here. That worship team, it's the first time I'm here at Zion Church. I just want to also thank the worship team for leading us into worship. You guys are unbelievably gifted. You have stirred my soul in love for the Lord and in worship for the Lord. So thank you. You should be encouraged because God has gifted you in so many ways. So whoever was on that worship team, I know a couple. You guys are doing wonderful work. So please be encouraged this morning. I hail from the wonderful state of Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia. Um, and I think one of the most vivid displays of the unifying power of Jesus is when Cowboys fans and Eagles fans can actually dwell in the same house together. It's a wonderful miracle, only happens a couple times on a Sunday for a few hours. And out of respect for you, I won't mention how the Eagles were the last team in our division to win the Super Bowl. I, I won't mention that. I wouldn't do that to you or about last week. Oh, yes, one more year. Been hearing that for a few years, Louis Ungo. <laughs> but it really is a joy for me. Let's pray together and ask God to meet us this day with his word. Let's pray. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers they fail, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Our Lord, would you help us to believe in your eternal, your unfading word in these moments today? May the light of God's word shine through all of the darkness of this world. May it penetrate our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. We need light to shine in the darkness because we live often in darkness. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would shine this day. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Listen to this quote by a man you may have heard named Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers, whose sermons have been treasured for years, quoted over and over again in churches and in seminaries throughout the years. Hear what this man says. He was a megachurch pastor before there was any megachurches, and you guys have a lot here in Texas. He had thousands of people come just to hear him speak on a Sunday. Hear what this man, Spurgeon, says, and listen closely. I could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what I was weeping about. The mind can descend far lower than the body, for in it there are bottomless pits. The flesh, our bodies, can only bear a few number of wounds and no more, but the soul can bleed 10,000 times over and over and over again in just one hour. You hear that, and you hear the greatness of this man Spurgeon, and you wonder, this is a surprising quote from the Prince of Preachers from a man who is so revered in Christian history. Because you see, Spurgeon was actually a man who struggled with something many of us know. And he struggled with something called chronic depression and anxiety and despair. You think, right? A man of such godliness who preached pure wisdom. Everything that he said were like treasures and gems coming off of his lips. And this man, 
was also a man who often had a dark cloud over his head. Uh, what Spurgeon suffered from is what we want to consider today. What I want us to consider today to answer the question, and often the hard question. I'm not sure if I've asked it many times, perhaps you've not yourself. What does the Bible have to say when I am in despair? What does the Bible have to say when I'm depressed, when I'm anxious, when I've got a dark cloud over my head that I cannot lift? Does the Bible have anything to say when I'm in the lowest of lows? At our church back in Philly, a couple of years ago, we had a chance to do some study and research, and we found out that some of the most common things that when you go on Google search, that people search when it comes to the Bible, when they type what does the Bible say? One of the most common things that are searched, top five, is what does the Bible say about depression? And you wonder about that. And you wonder because it makes you think, how many people in your city, or forget the city, how many people in the four walls of this church have the same question? Does God have anything to say about the despair in my soul? Where do I go? You can imagine. You yourself, you ask your own hearts the hurt that exists within us, and the despair. And in fact, it would be no stretch to say that not just in our cities, but in the four walls of a wonderful church like this, and my own church back in Philly, we have this question. What does God have to say? Listen, at our church, and I'm sure here as well, there are medical and mental health professionals that I've spoken to and counselors that I've spoken to. They would tell us that this topic of despair, depression, has a wide spectrum, everything from deep discouragement to all the way to clinical depression and, and things that you, you need help with and, and physicians to help with. So I'm so thankful for physicians and experts and counselors to help us think through these things, none of which I admit to you I am. And I don't have that expertise. So our aim this morning is not to diagnose, it's not to figure out the cure or to even cure depression today with a sermon. Instead, our aim today is to answer the question, what does the Bible say, and therefore God, say to those who are living in the darkness? You, you hear that question, you feel heavy even just hearing that, right? It's not necessarily the kind of sermon that we will have amens, I'd imagine, shouting out and hallelujah shouting out. I need your encouragement, so you need to help me, but this is going to be a hard sermon to hear because you think about the darkness of the world, but even more so the darkness that we often face in our own hearts and in our own minds. What does the Bible, what does God have to say for, to those for whom darkness is their closest companion? And to answer that this morning, we're going to go to God's Word. We're going to go to Psalm 88. Perhaps a psalm that we don't visit often because it's a hard psalm to read. I've got a, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, go to Psalm 88. And while you're turning there, a few things about this psalm. One, one commentator has said that this psalm, Psalm 88, is the saddest prayer of all in the Bible. And what makes this psalm so particularly sad is this psalm never turns. Hear that. It never turns the corner. It never pivots. There's never an upswing in this psalm. Psalm 88 is what you call a psalm of lament. And just about every other psalm of lament turns. It descends down really deep, but then it turns and comes up. It starts out dark, but somewhere in the psalm, there's a crack in the door and a stream of light that just comes in, just a glimmer of hope. 
For example, when you read from Psalm 13, how does it begin? It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? That's how the psalm starts, in the dark, in the valley, deep down low. But then as the psalm progresses, it climbs from the darkness and says later, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has dealt bountifully with me. Do you feel that turn? Do you feel that rise, the pivot? It starts down really low in the valley, but ends high on the mountaintop. In nearly all of the other psalms of lament, either God delivers, he rescues, he shows up, or at least the psalmist himself has the surge of renewed faith in God, and it ends on the up. That's how it is with all of them, but not here. Not in Psalm 88. Because Psalm 88 is a tunnel with no light at the end of it. Psalm 88 is a dark cloud with no silver lining. Psalm 88 is like a song played only in minor chords. It's like a painting stroked with brushes only with dark paint. Psalm 88 begins in despair and it ends in despair. It begins in darkness and it ends in darkness. In fact, the last word of the psalm is literally darkness. Think of that. What kind of song ends in darkness? Uh, Because that's what this is, a song. The Psalms are like a songbook for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So you could imagine, could you imagine, being in a church and the worship team up here that led us this morning begins to sing and lead you in a song. And when you get to the end of the song, the last line of the song is, the only friend I have is darkness. Or singing a song titled, what a friend we have in darkness. It seems odd, but that's what this psalm is doing. That's what this psalm is essentially saying. It's unsettling. Do you feel it? It's unnerving. It it gets uncomfortable. And so you ask yourself, perhaps you're asking right now, so why is this song, why is this prayer, why is this psalm even in the Bible? And you ask yourself moreover, What hope can be gleamed from a song that has no hope? Uh, What can people in darkness and in depression learn from such a depressing psalm? Well, I think surprisingly a lot. We are not without hope today. I think we who are in despair, and I'd say a lot of it, whether it's today or a time coming, can learn a lot from this psalm because when we allow the message of this psalm to sink deep into our hearts, Psalm 88 can become for us like a nightlight in the darkness. What should you sing when you're miserable? Psalm 88. What should you pray when you're depressed and in despair? Psalm 88. It's not a psalm that you should just ignore and throw away because it's hard. Here is a song for miserable Christians, and here is a prayer for depressed and despairing believers. Now, I know, I know a sermon on the darkest psalm in the Bible may seem ill-fitting for the last Sunday of the year, right? Perhaps you're thinking that. You look over the year, and you're looking forward in great anticipation to 2020. And I almost want to prepare you to say, listen, this last year may have been filled with joy, but I'm sure you had despair. And can I also tell you, next year I'm sure we'll have many joys, but I know we'll have many despairs for you and I. 
And so it's actually right for us in this moment to consider this psalm. And I, I trust that the Holy Spirit is leading many of you to consider this moment from God's word, from Psalm 88, a word to you particularly. Would you know that it's the kindness of God that perhaps you need this psalm today? But it doesn't exactly spark holiday cheer, does it? Right? We've not even taken the lights down yet. We're still singing the carols. And again, I don't imagine that a, song, a sermon like this will get many amens from you. That's okay. But if we're honest with ourselves and with what the Holy Spirit wants to convey this morning, a sermon on Psalm 88 may be exactly what many of us need to hear. So here's my ask to you as you listen for the next few minutes. It's simply to hear and to be honest before God and with your own heart. Whether you're young or old, man or woman, hear God's word and let the Holy Spirit minister you to you through it. So let's unpack this psalm together. There's a lot to consider. We're not going to consider all of it, but let's open up to Psalm 88. Psalm 88 shows us many things, but I want us to focus on just two things as we leave here today. One thing that we should know and one thing that we should do. One thing that we should know and one thing that we should do. When we find ourselves in darkness, one thing that we should know and one thing that we should do. Here's the first. Here's the first thing I want you to know from Psalm 88 when you're in darkness. This psalm invites us to first know that even godly, mature believers get depressed and find themselves in despair. This psalm invites you to know, to take a deep breath, to be relieved by, to have permission to know that even godly, mature believers get sad and grow in despair. Let me say it quite frankly right from the start. If you think, if I think, if we think as a church that somehow godly, mature, varsity-level Christians are above all of that, are somehow immune from melancholy, from bouts of depression or feelings of despair, then we would be thinking something that is frankly untrue and very unhelpful, both for ourselves and for others. In fact, look at the psalm. Look above verse 1. Perhaps in your Bibles you see something, some information there. It tells us that this psalm was written by a man named who? Heman. Heman was actually the grandson of the great prophet Samuel. Samuel was the one who anointed the great king David. Samuel's grandson is this man who wrote this psalm, Heman. And moreover, the Old Testament tells us that Heman was appointed by King David to be a leader of the worship team of Israel. He would lead the procession. He would lead the people of God to God. He was a skilled musician who led the people of God. And not only that, the Bible tells us that this man was blessed. He had 17 children, all of whom became trained musicians like himself and served in the house of the Lord like dad did. This man was prophesying by the Holy Spirit through song. And if nothing else impresses you about who Heman was, he wrote actual scripture. He wrote and penned actual words of God. That means that he is at a level of spirituality that you and I will never attain to. This man has everything. What I'm trying to get across to you is that Heman had an impressive spiritual resume. He had everything you could possibly want when it comes to level of spirituality and maturity. 
And even in this psalm, you can see the devotion that he has to God. He, sees, he says in verse 2, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear. In verse 9, every day I call upon you, O Lord. Verse 13, but I call, O Lord, I cry out to you. My morning prayer comes before you. Now listen, what does all of this mean? This means that you can be a believer, be godly and mature, that you can pray and pray and pray and still everything in your life go wrong and be the same as it was when you started that prayer, when you finished the prayer. That's what it means. It means that you can have rich devotional times every day, that you can pray and say amen and nothing happen. You're still in the dark. Nothing about your circumstance may have changed. The darkness has not lifted above your head. This man, listen, a man of the Bible who penned scripture, this man, godly, mature, as varsity Christian as you can get, never missed a day of prayer, never missed a church service. He was true, a genuine believer with nothing sinister or secret going on in his life. And yet, would you hear this? His life was falling apart. He wasn't immune from it. He wasn't immune from despair. In fact, just listen to his depressed cry. In verse 3, his soul is full of trouble. His life is near the end. In verse 4, he feels like God has left him for dead and forgotten about him. He has no strength and he can't bear it anymore. In verse 8, he's all alone and everyone has shunned him. In verse 9, his eyes grow dim through sorrow. He's cried so much, it literally says he can't see anymore. All the way until it descends into verse 18 when he says, darkness is the only friend I have. And what's the implication there? Darkness and not God is the only friend I have left. My only companion left is darkness. And friends, that's especially what makes this psalm all the more painful and unnerving for us to hear. Because it's not just that things around him, the circumstances of life, are dark. It's that things within him have turned dark. God has turned off the light in his heart. It's pitch black in his soul and he's groping in the darkness trying to find God and he cannot see God. He can't feel God. He can't sense that God is near. God feels like he's a million miles away. Have you been there? Have you been there? Listen, you can relieve yourself and say, I've been there. I, I have been there. Where God feels like he's a million miles away. All you want is God, but he does not feel near. You see, that's what makes this psalm especially hard. Because you and I know Psalm 23. Right? Because it's one thing to say with David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? For you are with me. You feel the encouragement because God is with me. It's one thing to say I can go through any valley no matter how dark it is as long as I know that you are with me, God. If the light of your countenance lights my valley, I can go through any dark valley. And that's right and that's true. But it's another to be in this pit and to search for God, to grope around for God, and to call out for him. And heaven remains silent. And the clouds don't part. And no voice comes down from heaven. There's nothing, 
nothing. It feels like the absence of God, darkness. And in that place, to be forced to cry out as he does in verse 14, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you throw my soul away like it's nothing? And why do you hide your face from me? You can, even all, you, can, you can be at the very level of Haman, godly, mature, prayerful, but it does not make us completely immune from this darkness. In fact, hear these words written by Christian church fathers centuries ago. They described the Christian experience this way. Listen. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, or temporarily lost in various ways, one way being by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and allowing even those who reverence him to walk in darkness and have no light. Hear that. That if you are here, there might be moments in your life where you feel the darkness so deep that God himself has removed the light of his countenance from you. To know that it's, it's Christians telling you centuries ago, you know what Christians will often face? Hear this, Zion. They will face that their faith is being shaken, perhaps with fears and doubts creeping in, that their very assurance of God rattled, even temporarily lost. And though you are sincerely devoted to him and that you love him, you may be in the darkness without any light. Psalm 88 is telling you, hear me again, that you need to know you can be all well and good as a Christian, but you can still find yourself deep in a pit. And so you ask again, I ask, how could that possibly be helpful for us today? But it is. It is in part because it simply helps to set our expectations right about the actual world that we live in. Hear this. You, you see, the Bible, though it is giving us a hard word, is giving us a helpful word this morning. Because it's telling you, if you are honest with yourself, this is what life is really like. It's telling us that Christian life often feels more like the really hard life than the blessed life. Right? We, we want to feel blessed, and we want to know that we're blessed, but if we're honest, it often feels like the really hard and difficult life. I heard one preacher make this simple point. He said, if you were about to just step into some ordinary room, perhaps this room on the side here, and you walked in, and someone told you, this is a honeymoon suite, you would look at that room and think to yourself, no, this is a, this is a dump. But if another person came and told you to go into that same exact room, but told you that's a prison cell, you would think differently and you would think to yourself, this is not so bad. I can manage this. You see, the room is exactly the same, but your expectations for what to actually anticipate are completely different and it changes the experience of your circumstance. And so here's what the scriptures are saying. If you go through Christian life thinking, because I'm a Christian, really, really bad things won't happen to me, then you will be crushed when really, really bad things happen to you, because really, really bad things happen to us all. Isn't that true? That's not what we know from our own experience, because what we read in our Bibles are that really good people actually get really bad circumstances and situations, 
pounced on them. And faith in Jesus does not make us immune from the really, really hard things of life. The Bible this morning is doing us a favor by saying, in this broken world, you will endure really, really hard things. There will be darkness and it may be dark for a long time where you feel like it's never going to quit. And the Bible is setting your expectation so that you might not be surprised or naive. Listen, wouldn't we want to protest and say, doesn't the Bible say that all things work together for the good of those who love him? Wouldn't we want to say that? One preacher simply pointed out about that verse that, did you notice that implied in there is that you are susceptible to all things? Hear that. All things work together for the good of those who love them, but that means that you and I are susceptible to the all things. Yes, all things work together for the good of those who love him, but the implication is that you too can experience all things, all kinds of really bad things. God will work together for your good, but that means we will experience bad things because that is within all things. And he does not promise in that verse that he will tell you within a week, within a month, within a year, within a decade, or even at the end of your life, when and how all those things will work together for your good. And so this scripture is saying to you, really hard things happen to really godly Christians. And it says to us, like Peter says, do not be surprised, brothers, that sufferings and fiery trials of all kinds come into your life. So the first thing, before we turn the corner a bit, the first thing, we want you to know that even godly mature and mature believers get depressed and go into despair. That's what you should know. And second, what should you do? When you find yourself in darkness and life is really hard, you should tell God that life is really hard. I don't know that it can get more simple than that. When you find yourself in the darkness and when life is really hard, you should tell God that life is really hard. You know what godly, believing Christians do when life is really hard? They go to God and tell them that. Tell him that. Would you look at this psalm again with me, Psalm 88? And if I asked you, if I had a whiteboard up here with a marker and I asked you, what words would you use to describe this man's prayer? What would you use? What would be some of the words that you would use? Because listen with me again as he talks to God. In verse 6, he turns and starts using the word you. He starts using the word you. So you can almost picture Haman with fists pointed at the heavens. And now he begins to say, you, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Do you hear him? Do you see the fists raised? Look at what you have done to me, oh God. And look at verse 10. He begins to question God. He starts and says, let me ask you, God. Do you work wonders for the dead? It's an odd line. Do, you, do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? You hear what Heman's saying. He's almost speaking sarcastically. He's asking, let me ask you a question, God. Do you have a choir in the grave somewhere that I don't know about that sings your songs? Do you have skeletons and coffins that worship you that I'm not aware of? 
Do the departed rise and is there some kind of concert of praise that I am ignorant to? Tell me, God. Is there something in darkness that I don't know that is so wonderful? You see what he's saying to God. He's essentially saying, God, don't you know, if you lose a worshiper, that goes against your whole plan for the world. If you lose me in despair and death, don't you want all people to know you? And I'm asking you, I'm ready. Rescue me, save me. I want you. Where are you? God, you feel the desperation of Heman. And after all this questioning, right? Nothing. No answer. No deliverance. No clouds part again, no stream of light, no voice from heaven, no circumstance changes. And so even after his questioning, all of his protest, all of his agony with no answer from God, he descends further into verse 15 and he says this, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, you know what, God, this whole story, this whole circumstance, it's nothing new. This is the same God from my youth. You were never there for me. You've always been far from me. You've never felt close to me. I can trace it from my childhood on. And what he's doing, he's actually taking his moment of darkness and now characterizing his whole life as God being distant. His present darkness is now clouding him. And God feels like more than a foe, than a friend. I'd ask you again, what words would you use to describe this man's prayer if we had a whiteboard? This depressed and despairing believer's prayer. I'd imagine some of us would say it's honest. It's raw. Perhaps we'd say it's uncensored. It's unfiltered. We may even be so bold as to say that it's irreverent. And that it feels exaggerated. But it's real. You see, this is the real Haman praying to the real God. And he doesn't hide behind a theology in the prayer. He doesn't hide behind anything to make himself feel better. Listen, there's no problem here with Heman's theology. He's got that on lockdown. Do you know your Bibles? He knows it better. And I can also tell you that if Heman was praying this prayer around us today, this prayer in Psalm 88, if one of you prayed out loud today and one of you stood up and prayed like this right now, I can promise you that everyone in here would all of a sudden feel very nervous. We'd grow very unsettled and suddenly everyone would look at Pastor Justin and say, would you stop this? Would you stop this prayer? Right? It's the same thing would happen in my church. We would all stand up and wonder in our minds, when are you going to talk to that person and let them know that they can't say that? At least not in public. When are we going to say that's enough? They can think that in the privacy of their own hearts. They can't say that out loud. I know in my church everyone would cringe and so would I. It would be the same at my own church. We might pull them aside, give them a book about theology, or even give them some words saying, do you know that God is everywhere? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's actually everywhere. You don't have to feel this way. But you want to hear something? Haman has no problem with theology. He helped pen about half of the Psalms in this book. He has no problem with theology. You can go read them. His theology is perfect. But right now, what he knows up here It's hard for it to knock down and settle down in his heart. He knows everything, but it has not made its way down into his heart. So I'd ask you then, what does it say about God? That God did not reject this psalm. 
Ask yourself that question. What does it say about God that a prayer that would make you and I nervous doesn't make God nervous? A prayer that would offend you and I if it were said out loud doesn't offend God. Really think of this today. What does it say about your God and my God that he didn't reject this prayer or reject the person who prayed it? Moreover, what does it say about your God that he recorded this prayer and put it in the scriptures? I'll give you one more. What does it say about your God that his spirit inspired this prayer? Right? God inspired this prayer because all scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. What does it say about your God that his Holy Spirit inspired Heman to write and record and pray this very prayer? It means that if nothing else, your God is not the God of those who can put on plastic smiles and just say the right things. We, me, who can hide behind the right theology, right? It it says that this God is okay with you feeling with what you feel, who find it difficult to sometimes even sing songs on a Sunday like today. Where we're fighting to believe, where we're fighting to lift our hands, where it's right to say amen and hallelujah, but it, it, it is agonizing because our hearts are in such despair. God is the God of real and broken people. And God actually seems big enough to know that we get like this sometimes when we're in deep darkness. That God can handle our questions. That he's not scared away by us. That God's not startled by our honesty. You see, what this psalm shows us is that when life is really hard, you and I have permission from the Bible to go to God and tell him that life is really hard. That you can breathe even now. You can take a breath and be relieved to know and find relief from God without having to prop ourselves up and pretend. And in fact, you know what this psalm means? When life gets really hard, even for mature and godly believers like you and I, that you can weep, you can mourn, you can wail, you can lament. Because I think sometimes we think super spiritual responses to difficult circumstances is something that we have to do, right? Almost feeling like we're Superman. No matter what flies at us, the bullets just keep popping off, right? Nothing can hinder us. Nothing can affect us. Nothing can make us shed a tear or nothing can make us break. Like Superman, we don't feel anything. Everything just bounces right off of us. But can I tell you, that wears on you really fast. It's tiring. It's hard. When the billets hit, you know what Christians do? And here from Psalm 88, they weep. They mourn, they lament, and they sometimes even look up to God with clenched fists and ask in desperation, God, where are you? I'm pleading, I'm crying, why won't you hear me? One Christian writer rightly said, it seems to me that we do not need to be taught how to lament. What we need is simply the assurance that we can lament. And I think that's right. When you're in pain, you don't need to be taught that you can say something to God. You simply need to be assured that you can say something to God. How are we doing on time, Pastor Justin? Good. I've just got a few more words. I don't want to take too much time. But you see, in the Bible, when you're in the pain, the Bible doesn't come and look at our pain and our despair, our questions, our confusion. The Bible doesn't hear that and say, listen, get over it. Stop. <laughs> Stop feeling that. 
Just, just stop feeling that. The Bible instead, when you're in pain, the Bible's answer to you is to go to God with it. It's not to ignore it. It's not to just stop feeling it. It's to go to God with it. Because think about your own life, right? When you meet, some, perhaps you've been there, I, I've been there. But when you meet someone else who is in despair and in depression perhaps, what do we want to know? How can I pull this person up out of the pit as fast as possible? Right? Out of love, you just want to pull them out because you love them. And it's hard seeing them in despair. It's hard being around folks who, who struggle with despair. You don't know how to act. You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do with your hands. So you just say some Christian cliches and hope that it will bring them out as fast as possible. But it doesn't seem like that's God's only posture. In fact, the psalm is not saying get over your pain. The psalm is saying go to God with your pain. And let me tell you, Zion Church, that's what's most amazing to me about this psalm. You know why this psalm is like a nightlight for those who are in darkness? It's because it shows you and I something. It shows you that despite what Heman is going through, he's going to God. It's like one writer says better than I could say, cloudy as this psalm may seem, we shouldn't miss the most obvious point. Yes, the psalmist says, his soul is full of troubles, that his life draws near to the grave, that he can't escape, that his life is a horror, that he's cast down, that he's unheard, that he's afflicted, that he's all alone from God and from everyone. But he's telling all of this to God. All of it is to God. That's Psalm 88. Do you hear him? He's crying, he's screaming, he's kicking, he's wailing, he's exaggerating, he's shaking, he's protesting, but he's doing it all to God. No matter what comes, he will not leave God. He will go to God. You see, what believers do is they fall apart. They get ripped open at the seams. All that they know is ripped apart. But they do it falling Godward. When you and I fall apart, we don't just run away. We actually we fall and we repent and we fall Godward. And that's what this psalm shows us. They are wrecked by their life and mind, but it's a falling Godward. You can kick, you can wail, you can protest, you can lament, but Christian, do it Godward. Do all of that Godward. It's towards God. It's not that Christians don't get depressed and fall into despair. It's that they do it Godward. He's crying and lamenting, but he's also saying, I'm not going anywhere but to you with this. You're going to hear my complaints, God. You're going to hear my cries because I am not stopping coming to you. I'm going to lament and cry and kick and scream God word. It's like in that moment, you remember, when everyone begins to leave Jesus, and then Jesus turns to Peter and asks, are you going to leave me too? And Do you remember what Peter says to Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Where else should I go? Where else am I going to go? It's almost as if Peter is saying, Lord, if I'm honest with you, if there was another option, I would honestly consider it. If there was an alternative, I might even go. Because Jesus, following you is often incredibly hard. And sometimes it doesn't even feel like you're near 
or are around or that you care about the details of my life. So if there was somewhere else to go, I might go. But Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? You are God. You are God. That's what Haman realizes. I have nowhere else to go because you're God. Whether I feel it in my heart right now or not, you're God and I'm going to go to you. I'm not going anywhere else. It's like when my son or daughter, and they do, have a temper, temper tantrum. Right? They're growing up, they're one in three, and I love my kids, but they've got some serious anger issues. Right? They're starting to show my own sin nature a bit. And they get angry and they scream, the little one especially. He's got this, this, this sort of raspy voice that you would laugh when he's crying and throwing this temper tantrum. But it's almost as if you can imagine, right, when they are screaming and kicking, they're wrestling within my arms, screaming and kicking and wailing. In that same way, right, so is Heman wrestling within the arms of God, screaming and kicking and wailing. But he's still right there within the arms of his father. And guess what? Dad is not letting him go. And Heman himself is not going anywhere. That's his son. He's not going anywhere. So you know that stubborn, won't let go of God no matter how bad it is kind of posture that you and I often get to? It's a good one. Because in those moments where you say, I'm not going anywhere, it builds something. God might be doing something in your life that's producing something really great. What do I mean by that? A pastor named Tim Keller, perhaps you've heard of him, makes the point brilliantly. Here's what he says. The times of darkness in your life are supreme opportunities for God to turn you into something great. Because here in Psalm 88, Heman is holding on to God. He's praying, he's worshiping, he's leading God's people. And in all that he's doing, hear this, he's getting nothing out of it now. Right? God's nowhere to be found. Nothing's changing. No prayer is answered. No circumstance has changed. Heman is getting nothing out of this, even though he's doing everything right. So then what? Keller says this. It's sort of like the story of Job, another famous sufferer in the Bible. And when the story of Job opens, what's the scene? Satan goes to God and he says, listen, do you know why Job worships you and follows you? It's because you give him everything he wants. You answer his prayers. You give him a family. You give him a, a land and prosperity. But what if you took all of that away? You're kind to him. You're gracious to him. But it's not just Job, God. All of your followers, they all worship you because they get something out of you. And so Satan's challenge to God is, don't you see? God, you're just a means to the end for them. You're not the end itself. You're just the way that they get to what they want. They're using you. And so the challenge Satan throws down is, I'll prove it. Don't listen to his prayers anymore. Take everything that he values away from him. Strip him of all of this. Throw, them in, throw him in the darkness. Don't give him any sense of your nearness or your love. And I promise you, he will curse you, leave you, and die. That's the taunt of Satan. That's the challenge that's thrown. And if you know the story of Job, you know what happens at the end of Job. And yet... The truth is that when we think of it, is Satan right? If we're honest, ask yourself, not who is next to you or someone else. Ask, ask your own heart. Be honest. Do I use God simply to get what I want? Is God a means to the end or is he the end itself? 
When you look at Psalm 88, you may not see it at first, but Satan is actually defeated. You may not see that. But you know why he's defeated? Heman is getting nothing out of this relationship. No prayer answered, no circumstance changed, no dark cloud of despair lifted. And yet Keller makes this simple point. The darkness presents to you a choice where God comes to you and says, in your darkest state, now we'll finally, finally find out whether you got into this relationship to serve me or whether you got into this relationship to get me to serve you. Did you hear that? We'll find out when you're at the lowest point, whether you got into this relationship to serve me or whether you got in for me to serve you. When nothing's coming, when there's no benefit, we'll finally find out why you're in this thing. You see, there's nothing like the darkness to begin to turn a person into what God wants for them. There's nothing like the darkness. The suffering and despair that you feel, there really is nothing like it. And as we close this day, would you hear this? There are these two things that I want you to know and do. But there is no one who has actually suffered greater than Jesus Christ himself. Because when you read through Psalm 88 and other Psalms like 39, you realize that there's forsakenness and darkness all over. And though you and I often feel forsaken, and feel the darkness over our souls. Do you know who was actually forever forsaken? Do you know who was actually condemned? Where darkness covered the earth from noon to 3 p.m. When you read the Gospel of Matthew, would you know that it was Jesus Christ? That when you and I felt the darkness, Jesus actually in, was engulfed in it. And when Jesus was actually forsaken, when you and I just feel it, he was actually forsaken by the Father. Worship team can come up as we enter into some worship now. But consider that. You and I might feel forsaken. You and I might feel the darkness. What is it actually to actually be forsaken by the Father? And to be in utter darkness. And do you know why he's done this? Do you know why Christ Jesus has come into this world? To take on darkness and to take on the forsakenness of God? And so that you and I would never endure ultimate darkness. It's so that you and I would never experience ultimate forsakenness. You and I will feel darkness in this world. We may even feel forsaken at times. But look to Jesus. Look to Jesus today. See Jesus Christ who was forsaken for you. See Jesus Christ who was plunged into darkness for you. He took your sorrow. He took your sin. We sang this morning, death could not hold you. The veil torn before you. You, the boast of heaven is that Christ Jesus has taken on your sin and that the, the sin and grave has not overcome him. Listen, dear brothers and sisters at Zion. You will fear despair in this life. You will feel, feel the darkness of this world. But know that you will not be overcome by it. You will not be because, listen, Though it may feel like Psalm 88 doesn't have a turn, Heman doesn't know something that you and I know. He does not know that Jesus came, that he died. And listen, there is a song on the other side. There is a praise, a choir on the other side of the grave saying that Jesus Christ has risen and that death and sin and sorrow and despair and depression will all be forsaken and that it will be defeated and that we on the other side will have hope eternal. 
Listen, it's going to be hard for you to hold on to Jesus. I know, it's hard for me. And if we had time, I would tell you stories. Even this year, can I tell you, the hardest year of my life in faith, in ministry, I could tell you of the ways that I was plunged into the depths of darkness. But I saw Jesus. And I felt the light shine in the darkness because we know something that Heman didn't know. Light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome him. Isn't that what we celebrate at Christmas? That the light of the world has come into the world. And though we experience darkness, you and I can have the light of God shine in our hearts. Believe that, despairing Christian. Believe that, depressed believer. Believe that, those who are agonizing today. Those who don't know how to even put words to their despair. Those who feel forgotten by God. Who feel your hopes dashed, disappointments, things not working out the way that you want it to work out. Where do you go? Godward. Run this morning to God. Do not let go of him. He will not let go of you. Those whom are in his hands, he will never forsake. Jesus was forsaken for you so that you would not be. Let's pray together. Our Father, minister to our hearts right now. Allow our hearts to feel deeply. Allow our hearts to cry out to you this day. Allow our hearts to say in the sorrow for a bit, and would you by your Holy Spirit comfort us? There is nowhere else that we could go but to you. Oh Lord, as I've even heard my brother say today, who are we that you are mindful of us? Oh Father, would you come meet us in these moments, in these pews right now? There is hope in darkness, and yet you don't shoo away our darkness and our sorrow. You welcome us to come to you with it, and we are so thankful that you do. Help us to believe this day. It's in Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Zion.